Now we're going to turn in our Bibles, and once again we're going to look into the book of Revelation. We're going to commence our review of a passage of Scripture at chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to finish it at chapter 11, verse 19. My job is to talk, your job is to listen. If you finish your job before I finish mine, just feel free to leave. <laughs> I, I will understand perfectly. But I will, I'll try very hard to keep the time, but we are trying also to cover a lot of material, to give you an overview of this remarkable book. Let me just remind you that John was granted a vision or a series of visions on the island of Patmos where he was in exile because of his commitment to the testimony of Jesus. During the course of his exile there, these visions come to him and he is instructed to make careful notes and to send what he learns from these visions to the churches in western Turkey, as we now call it, the Roman province of Asia, as it was in those days. These churches are going through difficult times. But in the vision, John is, is introduced by God to what must come to pass. That's a key to understanding the book of Revelation. He is introduced to what must come to pass. And he is writing to these churches, going through difficult times, with a view to encouraging them to stand firm under what must come to pass. And over and over again in the introductory letters to these seven churches, he talks about them overcoming. The reason for that is very obvious. There are many, many overwhelming things that are going to happen that could easily overcome them. But the church is called to be an overcoming community. In his vision, he sees one who is clearly the Lord Jesus, risen and exalted at the Father's right hand. And a voice in heaven points out that there is a scroll on the hand of the indescribably brilliant and glorious God on the throne. And the voice asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? What's in the scroll, we ask? Well, he'd been invited into the heavens in order that he might know the things that must come to pass. We put the two together, and we assume that the scroll is all about what must come to pass in the grand eternal purposes of God. Who can unfold this? Who can explain this? Who can implement all this? And the answer is nobody. John is so upset about this because he, like every other human being, wants to know what's going on in the world and why it's going on and what's going to happen and who's going to do something about it and when will they do something about it and how are they going to do something about it. We've been asking those questions ever since there was something called mankind. But then the word comes, there is one who is worthy and able to open the scroll and to look therein. And the one who stepped forward is Jesus, the lamb who had been slain. Now we come to the point where Jesus takes the scroll and he starts to break off one by one the seven seals. And as he breaks off these seven seals, which are of, of course necessary before the scroll can be opened, we begin to understand something about what must come to pass. 
before the grand cosmic eternal plan of God is brought to its great consummation. So we start with chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Notice that expression, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. The word is butcher each other. Take notice of that. To take peace from the earth and to make men butcher each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarters of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked. And there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Then he goes on to describe the opening of the fifth seal and the opening of the sixth seal. Notice, towards the end of the sixth seal, verse 15, it says this, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice that and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, what are the seven seals about? The seven seals are all about that which will lead up to and that which will be included in the day of the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What's that in simple English? The seven seals are about, listen very carefully, the righteous, holy, just judgment of God. That's what the seven seals are about. And you will notice that while some people would like to differentiate between a God of the Old Testament who sometimes seems to get angry and lose his cool and do all kinds of terrible things, but then we have a real cool Jesus in the New Testament, you'll notice that we are not allowed to make that differentiation, for it is the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. We're going to be talking about something that we don't really like talking about very much, and it is the fact that our God is a holy, righteous, and just God who must punish sin. 
and before that which God has planned for all eternity can ever come to pass, the seals have to be broken. The judgments have to come. And that is what this chapter is about. Now, as is the case on three occasions in the book of Revelation, John has seven items. He has seven seals, he has seven trumpets, and then he has seven bowls. On each occasion that he has these sevens, the first four come together, the next two are different, and the seventh one is the final cataclysmic judgment. The first four are descriptive of judgments that are taking place at this time. The fifth and the sixth ones are about the spiritual realities while that is going on. And the seventh one is all about the final day of judgment. Why? Because there are two dimensions to the judgment of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us this. The wrath of God is being revealed. Notice the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. It is a present reality now in our world. The wrath of God is being revealed. But then also, we are told that in the eschatological future, the day of wrath will come. We must understand these two dimensions. There is a sense in which the judgment of God is going on at this time in our world. But that will not exhaust the judgment of God. There will be a final cataclysmic judgment day. That is, in essence, what John describes in the three sets of sevens. Does, does one set of seven events, uh, do, do the trumpets uh, follow the seals? Do the bowls follow the trumpets? No, I believe not. I believe that they are a reiteration of the same thing seen from a slightly different point of view. Now, let me walk you through quickly uh, these seven seals or the breaking of the seven seals. You'll notice that the first four have to do with horses. There's a white horse, and then there's a red horse, and then there's a black horse, and then there's a pale horse, or a dappled gray horse. These four horses also appear in the prophecy of Zechariah, and they are also linked to four winds that are very powerful. And if you look in chapter 7, verse 1, you'll notice after he's talked about the four horses, he talks about the four winds. So John is clearly drawing from the minor prophet Zechariah at this point. What is the nature of this first horse? Incidentally, these four horses are often called the four horses of the apocalypse. There was a famous book was written with that title. There was a famous movie made as a result of that title. And because one of the coaches of Notre Dame one night was watching that movie, he thought of the four horses uh, of the apocalypse being the backfield of Notre Dame. But they should not be confused with, with Revelation chapter 6. What is this first horse then? It is all about being bent on conquest. Part of the judgment of God, part of the judgment of God is operative in the world today. And what is it? It is warfare. It is conquest. It is bloodshed. 
Let me just tell you about a word I learned today. I love it when I learn new words. It is, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It is either hemoclism or hemoclism. But I know what it means because it comes from two Greek words. Hemo or hemo is blood and clism is flood. And hemoclism means a blood flood. And it is the term that has been used to describe the slaughter that has gone on in the 20th century. In the hemoclism, or more accurately, two hemoclisms in the 20th century, in the East and the West, listen, a total of 155 million people were slaughtered. 75 million of them in the East from the overthrow of the Manchu dynasty to the overthrow of Mao Zedong. 75 million people died. In the Western world, from the revolution in the Balkans to the death of Stalin, 80 million people died in the West. In addition to that, there were the wars of Korea, there were the wars of Vietnam, and the result of that is that we are probably close to 200 million people who were slaughtered in the civilized 20th century through war alone. This is our world. This is the world we live in. Now, of course, it's not just the 20th century. In the Civil War, 618,000 people died. In the First World War, and I'm particularly intrigued about this, there was a little village called Passchendaele. And it was decided that this was a strategic point, and so the great armies of the Allies and the Germans fought over this little village. After they had fought for two or three days, the Allies managed to capture four miles of land, and they left behind 300,000 dead. In two days, fighting for four miles of meaningless property in Belgium. In Vietnam, 58,000 U.S. soldiers died. 300,000 U.S. soldiers were wounded. Someone asked Albert Einstein one day, what will happen in World War III? He said, I don't know, but I do know what will happen in World War IV. We'll be fighting with sticks and stones. What did he mean? What he meant by that was this, that there'll be nothing else left. We are on a hell-bent course of mutual destruction. That's the white horse. Now, the judgment of God that is being revealed from heaven at this time is simply that God gives people over to the consequences of their own sin. That's what it tells us in Romans 1. God gives us over to the consequences of our own sin. And it's absolutely fascinating, if you look at the history of war, how one of these great cataclysmic events has spawned another, has spawned another, has spawned another, has spawned another. It is simply God's judgment abroad. So much for the white horse. The second horse, the red horse. This is all about taking peace from the earth and making men butcher each other. Making men butcher each other. 
ethnic cleansing is not new, but it is something that has been refined to ghoulish heights in recent years. In 100 days in Rwanda and Burundi, listen, 800,000 people were butchered. 800,000 people in 100 days were butchered. The collapse of the communist regime in Yugoslavia, ethnic cleansing took place. A quarter of a million people died in a matter of months. Who was the greatest butcher in the 20th century? Was it Mao Zedong? Was it Adolf Hitler? Was it Joseph Stalin? It's hard to say. But Mao was certainly responsible for 40 million deaths, Hitler for 34 million deaths, Stalin for 20 million deaths. This is the judgment of God. It is God allowing the consequences of human sin to take its natural course and go on building up and building up and building up. This is our world. Famine is the black horse. You notice that it talks about a quarter of wheat for a day's wage and three quarters of barley for a day's wage and don't damage the oil and the wine. The suggestion is this. While some people are starving, other people are saying, don't touch our oil and wine. There will always be economic disparity even while people are starving. 23 children die every minute in our world from famine. 23 children every minute die from famine. In the Ukrainian famine in 1932, which incidentally came as a result of Stalin's misguided collectivism, which that's failed, the Ukraine was the bread basket of that part of the world, but because of the collectivist system, they changed the whole thing and it just didn't work, and the harvest failed. But the communist regime insisted that the people give 44% more than their usual quota to the government, even though the harvest had failed. And the result was that if they didn't give it, they were simply murdered. And if they looked healthy, they were murdered because it was obvious that they weren't giving their quota. And seven million people died in the famine in 1932. This is our world. The dappled gray horse. What about plagues? Well, of course, down through history, there have been great plagues. But what is the plague that is confronting our world at the present time? It is HIV and AIDS. Decades ago, we didn't even know what it was. When eventually we began to realize that there was something serious, it was contained basically to the homosexual community and then later to drug-abusing communities. And what is the situation now? 40 million people are infected with AIDS. Two and a half million of them are children. The Economist magazine said, arguably the biggest threat to life and prosperity in the developing world is the HIV virus. South Africa, we are told, is in danger of total economic collapse in three generations. For the simple reason that there's so many of their people are dying and children are not being trained and not to be cared for. This is our world. God gives human beings freedom. 
And he tells them how they should use their freedom, but human beings like to abuse their freedom, and God brings judgment upon people who abuse their freedom, and his judgment is to let them live with the consequences of the abuse of their freedom. And the result is warfare, ethnic cleansing, plagues, and all kinds of desperate, desperate situations. Now, the fifth seal that is opened here is very different. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the world and avenge our blood? Now we're talking about persecution. And the situation is different. While all these things are going on in the world, the church of Jesus Christ exists in this world. But the church of Jesus Christ is not immune from all these things that are happening in the world. And in addition to that, very, very often the church of Jesus Christ has suffered persecution at the hands of these people in the world. John calls them the inhabitants of the earth. Literally, it's those who dwell or those who feel at home in this world. There are some people who feel totally at home in this world, and there are some people who say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And those who feel totally at home in this world are often the greatest enemies of those who say this world is not my own. And as a result of that, in many areas, the church of Jesus Christ has been and continues to be persecuted. 1.8 million people were martyred in Africa in the last decade. 1.8 million people were martyred as Christians in that particular period. Now, the question that these martyrs are asking as they've come under persecution, Lord, you are a God of justice. When will you judge those people who persecute the church? And the answer is, their judgment is sure, and it will come. But then the sixth seal as we look into the sixth seal, it talks about a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth. The whole moon turned to blood. The stars in the sky fell like late figs dropping from a fig tree. And the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is the final judgment day. If you want a commentary on this from none other than Jesus himself, you can get it in either Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21. You remember that Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem. The disciples looked at the temple and said, oh, isn't this marvelous? And Jesus said, it is, but it won't last long. And they questioned, they, they asked him, it was twofold. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And when will the end be? They put the two things together. If the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed, that's the end of the world. And Jesus split their question into two and answered it in two ways. And he pointed out all kinds of cataclysmic events that would happen through earth's history, similar to the ones that John mentions here, but then he points to the great final cataclysmic judgment day. And that is what 
the sixth seal is about. And you notice the reaction of people at that point. The kings, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, the slaves, and every free man will hide themselves in caves and rocks in the mountains and call on the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What's all this about? It's all about this, that in the scroll, God has a plan a perfect plan, a glorious cosmic eternal plan. But part and parcel of that plan in preparation is this, that judgment must come on the sin and rebellion of humanity. And it will come in a continual way, for the wrath of God is being revealed, but it will be consummated in the great judgment day. And that is what the six seals are about. It's very interesting to notice that when John talks about his seven seals or his seven trumpets or, or his seven bowls, he always has a little interlude between the sixth and the seventh. And that is precisely what happens now in chapter seven and eight. So let's go quickly into chapter seven. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or the tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. All right? Now the little struggling churches in Asia Minor, they're hearing all this scary stuff. They don't need telling about earthquakes. They have earthquakes all the time in that region. They don't need telling about wars. They have wars all the time. They don't need telling about famine. Agabus had, had predicted a famine, and it came about shortly thereafter. They, they know all about war. They know all about bloodshed. They know all about famine. They know all about plagues. But what, they, what they're beginning to hear is this, that this is just the beginning and that it will all come to a great and frightening end when the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes. And the question that they're asking is, what's going to happen to us? What, what, what's going to happen to us at that particular time? And so before John finishes the seventh seal, he now has a little interlude where he injects something for the comfort and the encouragement of the people in those churches. And if all this is applicable to us today, as I believe it is, he has a word of comfort and encouragement for the contemporary church as well. And what is that word? It is that the servants of God, notice verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. The word of comfort is this, that the servants of God will be sealed by God. In other words, they will have on them the stamp of divine ownership. For as Paul tells Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. Doesn't mean 
doesn't mean for a minute that the church will be taken out of this world. Doesn't mean that we'll be exempt. Doesn't mean that we'll be immune. What it means is we will be secure in this situation. For those who are truly the servants of God are those who will be sealed. And you'll notice that the winds are held back. Now, because of Zechariah, the winds and the four horsemen are simply two ways of looking at these forces that are being unleashed on the earth. And they are being held back from the people of God and so that they can be sealed, so that it can be shown that they really belong to the Lord. You may say, well, what's this 144,000? Well, all kinds of theories about the 144,000, and I don't have time, obviously, to get into it right now, but I believe that it is a picture of the church of God. It is a picture of those who are the servants of the living God. What is the significance of the number? Well, who knows? But 12 squared is 144 times 1,000, and these are numbers of perfection or completeness. And so perhaps the 144,000 here is a picture of the complete church of God, all those who are gathered into Christ. Why is it put in this strange way of 12,000 from 12 uh, tribes? Perhaps, perhaps because there was a Jewish apocalyptic that John took and borrowed for his purposes and inserted in here. And it's interesting to notice that one of the, two of the reasons for, for doing that are, number one, the tribe of Dan is missing. And the reason that the tribe of Dan was missing was that Dan was persona non grata because he had been involved in idolatry and he wasn't counted. In his place is Manasseh, and Manasseh is one of the sons of Joseph. You don't need to worry about that. But now the second half of chapter 7, we see a different scene. After this, I looked, this is verse 9. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, you'll notice that this is inserted after there has been a a statement concerning the great day of the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. What is the response of this great company of people from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, and nation? It is a response of worship. Isn't that odd? When they hear about the righteous, holy, just judgment of God, they worship. Is that why we worship? Is is it because we have a a, a well-rounded view of who God is? Do we just think of him because he is uh, loving, because he is kind, because he is gentle, because he is gracious? Or do we recognize that if we're going to have an understanding of who God is, he is holy and righteous and just and gracious and merciful and loving. And every dimension of his character is seen in his dealings with humanity. 
And if God did not judge the world, he would not be righteous, and he would not be just, and his holiness would be twisted and warped. But when we see, when we hear of God being the one who in holy indignation and righteous judgment will judge the world, worship should be the response. And what should the response be? An attributing of salvation being that which belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. Why? Because you cannot have salvation without judgment. Unless we understand what judgment is all about, there is no way we'll understand what sin is all about. And if we don't understand sin and judgment, we will never grasp salvation. Who are these people who are worshiping in this way? Well, we know it's the elders. We've met them and the four living creatures. They're always up for a bit of worship, those guys. But then in addition to that, they are joined by a great company in white robes. Who are they and where did they come from? Verse 13. John says, I don't know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What is the great tribulation? Two possible answers to that. Christians are divided on these two issues. One answer is that the great tribulation is the whole age of the church, where the church has been persecuted, where the church has known trial and hardship and tribulation. Other people say, no, the great tribulation is going to be the end of the church age immediately before the great cataclysmic day of judgment. We'll only know when we get there which day it is. But I've often had people ask me, will the church go through the great tribulation? And I say, what, what's the, what are you really asking? Will the American church ever have it rough? And that is usually behind the question. And I say, if you were to ask the Christians in Vietnam, will the church go through the Great Tribulation? They'd say, oh yeah, we're in it. And if you go to many parts of Africa, to East Africa, for instance, the scene of the great revivals and the scene of the genocide, if you ask many of the people, but you can't ask them because they're dead, will the church in East Africa go through the Great Tribulation? The answer is, oh sure, we did. We did. So we shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to decide whether the great tribulation is that which the church goes through throughout the church age or whether it is the climactic final of these things. The, the, what we need to know is this, that those who come through it, those who overcome, are the ones who with the elders and the four living creatures once again take the opportunity to worship and they serve him day and night in his temple. And look at the promises for these people. Verse 16. Never again will they hunger. They've gone through famine. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them in any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There you have inserted between the sixth and the seventh seal this little interlude where John has this powerful word of comfort and encouragement for the people of God. 
They're going to go through the great tribulation, but they are being sealed. They belong to him, and the Lord knows those who are his, and they are safe in his hand. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, he opens the seventh seal. Verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayer of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The opening of the seventh seal seems like an incredible anticlimax. After all the thousands upon thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands have been singing and praising salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, the seventh seal is opened and there is total silence. What's the point of this silence? Some people say they are totally struck dumb with the immensity and the awesomeness of the judgment of God. Other people say no, because in the silence, an angel stands up and he goes to the golden altar and he takes incense and he throws it on the altar. And the fragrance of the incense fills the place. And then he takes the fire out of this altar and he hurls it down on the earth. What is the altar and what is the incense? We're told it is the prayers of the saints. What's happening to the prayers of the saints? They are being mixed with incense so that they are fragrant in the nostrils of God. Listen. But then the burning embers of these prayers are being hurled back on earth. Why? Listen. Because the prayers of the saints, even in times of great tribulation, ascend to the Father and are a sweet fragrance to him, and there's total silence in heaven, as God says, listen, my people are praying. My people are praying. Their prayers are being perfected. And then the angel takes the burning embers from the prayers and he hurls it back on earth. You know why? Because our prayers ascend into heaven and they are tremendously powerful on earth. What a word of encouragement to the people of God. Now out of the seventh seal come now seven angels with seven trumpets. Seven trumpets? Well, the trumpet in the Old Testament was always the instrument was, that was used by way of warning. By way of warning. The watchman would stand on the city walls, and if he saw the enemy coming, he would raise his trumpet, and he would sound the alarm. The trumpets 
that the angels now begin to sound, seven of them, are now warning the people, warning the people of the reality of the judgment of God. We had a picture of what goes on in the world as the consequences of divine judgment are felt, but the church is sealed in the midst of that tribulation. Now the seven trumpets warn the judgment is coming to the inhabitants of the earth. And here we have that expression again in verse 13. Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded. In other words, now we have a slightly different picture. Just the, the, the same judgments, the same things described, but now the focus is not that the church will be saved, the church will be secure in this situation. Now the emphasis is the people who dwell in the earth, the people who are at home in this world, the people who like it the way it is, those people need to be warned. They need to be warned of the reality of the judgment of God. You know, there are a lot of people today don't believe in the judgment of God. There are a lot of people look at what is going on in the world today and see no connection between it and the judgment of God. And there are many people who, seeing no connection between what is going on in the world and the judgment of God, will simply scoff at the idea that there will be a final judgment day. But that is a very, very precarious position to hold for one very simple reason. Nobody can know for certainty there's no such thing as a final judgment day. And the task of the Christian church is to be warning people, and listen to this good old-fashioned expression that we don't hear much now in the evangelical church in America. Good old expression. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. There may even be people here today who don't take this seriously think that they can just go about their lives and do any old thing. They don't worry about overcoming. They're just being overcome and they're just, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be all right. No sweat. No problem. Don't need to take it seriously. Listen, the greatest compliment that God could ever pay you, are you listening to me? The greatest compliment that God could ever pay you is he promises to judge you. Do you realize that was the greatest compliment he could pay you? Let me explain to you why. You see, I don't think a lot of you care two hoots what I do with half my time. You don't care. You know, as long as I don't do anything really bad and don't get in your way and don't upset you, that's fine. You get on with your life, I'll get on with my life. You don't care what I do. Between you and me, I don't care what you do either. You know, just get on with it. Until I have to be all pastoral, then I get a bit worried. But listen, that just shows how disinterested we are in each other. Just imagine that I thought that everything that you do is of such significance that I should take an intimate interest in it. Not only that, 
that I, out of great concern that you should live well, would evaluate it. Every little thing that you did was of great interest to me. Everything that you were doing was of such profound significance. I wanted to evaluate you. That's ridiculous. And that's how God looks at me, and that's how God looks at you. He says, everything that you do is so significant because you are so significant. And it is so significant that I am intimately interested in it and I am so intimately interested in it that I'm going to evaluate it. In other words, I'm going to judge it. He's paying us the compliment of saying we are of such infinite worth that everything we do is of infinite worth. That's why he'll judge it. And there's some people foolish enough to say there's no such thing as the final judgment. And I say foolish, and I'll tell you why. Because if there's no such thing as the final judgment, you, my friend, have no eternal significance. The day of the wrath of him that sits on the throne and of the Lamb will come. Amazing thing about the six trumpets is this. As they go through it, this is what it says. Verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by the plague still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear walk. Listen, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What is happening in our world today? The word of the Lord comes loudly and clearly that the judgment of God is being revealed from heaven. There is a final day of the wrath of the Lamb. We should prepare our hearts for that time. And the message has been going out for 2,000 years and people still won't repent. And that's the message of the trumpets. That's the message of the trumpet. Six of them before the seventh one. But then there's an interlude. You know about that now. There's an interlude in chapter 10 and chapter 11. John is given a powerful message by a fearsome angel. And immediately he's told to seal it up. You say, why in the world would he give him a message and then tell him to seal it? And this is simply to remind us that when we figured it all out, there's still a whole lot we don't know. So be very, very careful about those guys who've got the whole thing figured out. Because there's a whole lot of it still sealed. And it's just to keep us ever so slightly, deliciously off balance. Notice the second thing here. In 10, verses 6, it says, There will be no more delay. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. All right? There's much we don't know, but what we do know is this. One day, God will say there'll be no further delay. The end has come. The mystery of God, the unveiling of the purposes of God, has been completed. That's it. We should always be very, very careful of assuming 
that we can count on tomorrow. We should always be very careful that we don't assume that we can count on tomorrow. Then John is given a scroll and he's told to eat it. This reminds us of good old Ezekiel. And what, what happens when he eats the scroll? It tastes sweet to him. And then he gets down into his stomach and he has acid reflex. He has to take his nexium. Why? Because it is sweet to his taste, but sour when he begins to digest it. And the simple fact of the matter is this. We love the gospel. We love the gospel. But there's a sourness to it. For it is an extension of grace to those who will receive grace on the basis of repentance. And it is an awful condemnation of those who will not. And we must never lose sight of the two. It is sweet to our taste. It is sour in our stomachs. Well, there are many other things here. You can read on about those. I don't have time. Chapter 11 ends with the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That when the great cataclysmic final day of judgment comes, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The elders who were seated on their thrones before they fell on their faces and worshipped God. Of course they did. I want you to join me in making this great affirmation of faith. From verse 17 and 18. And we will join our voices with the 24 elders who are seated on their thrones, who fell on their faces, that's not necessary, and worship God. And we will say together, join me. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Is that what you believe? Because if that's what you believe, you can't go out of this place exactly the same way you came in. Because you're being confronted with eternal issues of monumental proportions. And just a word to some of you who may still be hardening your hearts against the Lord. Don't count on tomorrow. Don't count on tomorrow. Today 
is the day of salvation. Today is the day you get right with God. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know those of us who gave up on this talk and said, I have no idea what he's talking about. And you know those of us who know all too well what we're talking about, but still hold on to their way of life. As a member of those who dwell on the earth, they kind of like it the way it is, despite the evidence of judgment on every hand, despite the promise of the final judgment day. Lord, we pray for them. And we ask that your spirit would lead them humbly to repent and to receive that which they could never earn and would never deserve, the free gift of salvation. For salvation belongs to the Lord and he's willing to give it to us. And Lord, for those of us who claim to be yours, we rejoice in the fact that we're part of that great multitude of the 144,000, whichever way we want to look at it. We rejoice in the fact that we have the seal of the Spirit in our lives. We have to admit that very, very often we don't really think too much about this world of ours as being an arena in which your judgment is already in operation, a harbinger of the final day of judgment. We look forward to the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. But before that secret can be unrolled in the scroll, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls have got to happen. We ask that we might be sobered in these things as we go about our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, the Lamb, as it was slain, who stands in the throne of God. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all.